From the Political Science Department at UW-Madison, I'm Adam Wigger. I'm Mia Wagner. And I'm Michael Mikowski. I'm not trying to turn students into political scientists. I'm trying to turn them into intelligent consumers. There was also something about this department that was really wonderful. I felt like I was joining a place where the kind of work that I did would be valued and respected. I think one of the most gratifying things about being a teacher is to have students come up at the end of a class and say, yeah, I used to think politics was boring. And I yeah. just, this. This, this. this is 1050 Bascom. Today on the podcast, we are happy to have Professor Howard Schwaber, who is well known to many of our listeners and has won multiple awards for teaching and research throughout his career. Professor Schwaber, who has a JD and PhD, teaches many of the constitutional law courses at UW-Madison. Now that the Senate trial of President Trump has wrapped up with an acquittal, some political analysts have predicted that Trump may be the first president in history to be subsequently reelected. Today, we are sitting down with Professor Schwaber to get his expert take on what happened and why. Thank you so much for joining us today, Professor Schwaber. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So we'll just jump right in. What are some of the constitutional issues that were raised in this impeachment trial, and are they different from issues that we faced in past impeachment trials? Sure. So for starters, any impeachment automatically is all about separation of powers from a constitutional perspective. And it's important to note that there have only been three presidential impeachments in our history, but there have been a number of impeachments of federal judges. Uh, the impeachment clause has been used enough times that we have a body of, of background to work with. But always, the presidential impeachments are, of course, the most dramatic and the most important. So there's really, I think, two ways of thinking about this. One is relations between Congress and the executive, and one is the role of the courts. So in this instance, the second count of the impeachment was all about relations between Congress and the executive and the claim that Trump had abused his authority by not turning materials over to Congress. And the very first thing to know about that is that is arguably the oldest constitutional dispute in our history. In the 1790s, George Washington had a big fight with Congress about whether Congress could make him turn over papers because they wanted to get know more about how he was conducting his foreign policy. And a few years later, John Adams had the same controversy, this time with Jefferson in Congress. It became a heated battle um, over something called the XYZ Affair, which is a great story that everyone should look up just for fun. Mm -hmm. uh, but this literally might be the, the, the oldest constitutional question we have, which means that, for one thing, um, there's a lot that has been said about it. Unfortunately, it hasn't yielded a great deal of clarity. So, for example, in the Nixon proposed impeachment and the impeachment of Judge Nixon. There were various court pronouncements and various controversies that were argued through on this question, but there really aren't clear answers. Um, it, is absolutely the, it is absolutely true that Trump's stonewall, no witnesses, no documents uh, was extreme, but that is always a tension between the legislative and the executive, and especially uh, in a moment of impeachment. So the very first thing you'd want to look at is, you know, has anything changed about relations between Congress and the president? Um, in this instance, the really striking thing, of course, was the extent to which one house of Congress was in lockstep unity with the president, uh, and the other step was other house was manifestly was not. Uh, one lesson you could take away from this might be structural, and impeachment is not likely to succeed if the Senate is held by the party of the president. That was true in the case of Clinton. Uh, it's true this time. It's not a deep philosophical point, but sometimes political scientists try to recognize the sort of obvious structural points, and, and that can be one of them. You know, there aren't a lot of deeply interesting things to say about the questions of how far does privilege reach, 
certainly, I think Trump's invocation of privilege was unprecedented mm -hmm. and contrary to earlier judicial precedents. But of course, there's no surety that the rules work the same place in the context of a presidential impeachment that they do in the context of some other form of ordinary litigation or some other interaction between the president and Congress. And that's where the courts come in, the second piece of this. And there's been some coverage of this, but to my mind, not enough, which is that the courts have played a key role in preventing the House forcing materials out of the White House. Uh, the courts have slow-walked subpoenas. They sat on the Mulvaney subpoena for a year. Um, they have been loath to issue rulings when they could have done so. Uh, so, it's, I mean, it's not even just a matter of which, side, which way did they rule. They've been ve working very hard not to rule at all. And it didn't have to be that way. Federal courts can issue rules of production. They can petition for expedited review by the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court could have granted those reviews, and we could have gotten legal rulings. But these courts, including the Supreme Court, are presently dominated by judges sympathetic to President Trump. And so the other separation of powers piece you can take away from this is that you're unlikely to succeed in a contested, in a contested impeachment without the support of the courts. In the case of President Nixon, that support was there. The court was willing to issue rulings resolving the questions um, in at least some instances in ways that favored the, the impeachment. One reason courts in this impeachment have probably been reluctant to rule is that any plausible ruling would have meant that Trump would have lost at least some of the arguments <coughs> with respect to witnesses and documents. Um, you have you know, all kinds of ironies going on. Uh, for example, right now, the Senate has requested documents relating to Hunter Biden from the White House and Justice Department, right. and those documents are being readily <coughs> produced. Oh, okay. Legally, that can be argued to be a waiver of privilege. The impeachment managers could come back now and say, well, whatever arguments you had before, you don't have them anymore if the degree of privilege is the same in these two cases. But all of that kind of conflict would require a court willing to hear the case and rule on it, and higher courts willing to take up that ruling. So two structural points about this. You're unlikely to be able to impeach a president if the Senate is sympathetic to the president, and particularly if the Senate and the courts are sympathetic to the president. And maybe one way to think about it is if one branch is going after another, it had better have the support of the third. Mm -hmm. So does that constitute or is that a good example of how we may be in some sort of crisis where all three branches are kind of in lockstep with each other? Well, the House isn't, obviously. Yeah, that uh, I'm not of, sure why. Usually we think of a crisis as a situation where the three branches are completely not in lockstep with each other uh, and totally in conflict. Um, I'm, not, I'm not accustomed to hearing the idea of a crisis being too much effective unified action, unless, of course, you disapprove of the action, uh, as, as many of us may do. Right. Yeah. Um, I don't think we're in a moment of constitutional crisis. Uh, you know, I think there's been a, a fair amount of hysteria, with all due respect to the participants, in the description of what's at stake here. This was some political dirty tricks uh, of, of, an, of a relatively nasty sort, you know, make, make no mistake. Mm -hmm. uh, but a president engaging in political dirty tricks is hardly the destruction of the republic uh, in comparison. I, I'll give you a comparison. Uh, the evidence is pretty compelling now. There's no longer very much question. That in 1968, the Nixon campaign made a deal with North Vietnam to not sign a peace treaty uh, in the negotiations in Paris so as to deny the Democrats a victory. Wow. The promise was that the North Vietnamese would get better terms later. That didn't happen. Instead, there, was, there were three and a half more years of war, followed by a treaty on almost precisely the same terms. That strikes me. Uh, as a form of political dirty tricks yeah. that arguably threatens the integrity of the country. Uh, this is really kind of small change. You know, if you go back to the 40s and 50s and 30s, uh, politics is just a much dirtier sport. Um, so, you know, I, I'm, I'm not moved by the idea that either 
Trump's interactions with the Ukrainians, uh, Trump's willingness to buy into loony conspiracy theories and make them the basis for his actions. And, you know, if he sincerely believes these loony theories, then he's sort of acting in good faith. Then, then, then you're back to the idea of impeaching a president because he is so credulously stupid. <laughs> and unless you can make that an argument of incompetence, right, that's not really an impeachable offense. Yeah. How could anyone believe this story? Well, that's not, you know, that's not an, an article of impeachment right there. Um, so, I, I mean, I, I do think these were impeachable offenses, but there has been, you know, a lot of, I think, overstatement of the stakes. And, and this comes back to your question, are we in a constitutional crisis? Not really. A constitutional crisis arises when one branch tries to define both of the other two, or at least that's one way it can arise. Yeah. And I don't see that here. Fair enough. It almost makes you question what political narratives we've been told or have been told to be true are constructs. Well, I mean, first of all, you know, one thing that I always tell my students when we talk about uh, legal proceedings and trials and Supreme Court cases or anything like that, the version of the story that shows up in the court record is many, many steps removed from the version that was experienced by the participants. It's like a massive game of telephone, except it's motivated. The lawyers, if you think about a trial, the lawyers on one side say, this is the story. The lawyers on the other side say, this is the story. In passing a judgment, the judge and jury say, no, no, we're accepting this version or some combination of the two. Then it gets appealed. And on appeal, each of the two sides says, this is the story, this is the story. And this process repeats. And so by the time you get to a great big public event, like a Supreme Court case or an impeachment hearing, uh, of course you're dealing with constructed narratives. You know, and, and of course it's the fight over the narrative. But I do think there's a, a really important point about that or, or relevant to that. Yeah. One word I've been hearing a lot is precedent. And I think it's a very unhelpful word in the context of an, context of an impeachment. Historically, there were different views of how impeachment should work uh, and what the standard should be for high crimes and misdemeanors and questions of that kind. But in modern understanding, the general modern practice is it's fundamentally a political event, which means that a currently sitting Senate is perfectly free to determine what in its view constitutes an impeachable offense, and a future sitting Senate is perfectly free to reach a different conclusion. And there's no, there's no notion of precedent in the sense that, well, the Senate that was sitting in the case of the Clinton impeachment decided X, Y, Z, therefore we are bound to do the same thing. When we use the word precedent, we mean an earlier decision that is either binding or at least influential, right? At least is owed deference and respect. That's just not true in this situation uh, because this is a fundamentally political event, at least in its modern understanding. So, you know, one of the constructed narratives, if you do this, it'll be a precedent for future impeachments, and both sides are making this claim, right, one way or the other. Uh, and I just think that's a false narrative. It's sort of a false legalism that we like to use to make it all sound much more formal uh, hmm. and much more controlled than it really is. Interesting. So do you think norms, ha like, do norms matter in an impeachment process? Only the current norms. That is, what do you mean by current norms? The currently sitting Senate will decide what strikes okay. it as its, its members will decide what strikes them as so outrageous uh, as being worthy of impeachment and removal. There were a, a number of Republican senators. I haven't done a head count to see if this was would be enough for conviction if all of them had voted a certain way. But mm -hmm. certainly there were a number of Republican senators who said, I disapprove of what the president did. Right. I think it was bad, but not impeachable. And they are solely entrusted by the Constitution to make that determination. You know, and then it's not even it's not even necessarily about constructed narratives. Uh, a couple senators were for, forthright enough to say, I'm willing to accept every single fact alleged in the articles of impeachment and nonetheless don't find grounds for removal. And if that's true, that's their job. That's, that's a jury or a quasi-jury doing its quasi-juridical job. When we talk about precedent, too, precedent matters in the legal arguments being sure. made. 
So when we talk about like what Dershowitz was arguing, maybe we can talk about, or you could articulate sort of the legal argument he was Certainly. trying to make. And is that something that's controversial or is that, uh, I, I as we con- talked before, is kind of, are we just sure. outraged for no reason about that? I have to concede this is my favorite part of, of the entire proceedings. Yeah. But of course, given my background, that's not surprising. <laughs> uh, um, so first of all, and it pains me to do this, mm-hmm. but I feel the need to be fair to Alan Dershowitz. <laughs> and, and I don't want to be. I don't like being fair to Alan Dershowitz, <laughs> but I feel an obligation to do so. He didn't actually say what we all thought he said. Or rather, he said the mm-hmm. words, but it's not what it meant. He didn't get up and make an argument that as long as a president thinks it's good for the country that he be reelected, anything goes. That's not what he said. What he said was... In the, in, in, and you can see this in context if you read a few more questions before and after the, 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 this frequently quoted line. Uh, what he said was, in the absence of criminality uh, or similar, he used that, that, used that phrase, crime-like acts, which is singularly unhelpful. Uh, <laughs> but in the absence of criminality or, I guess, criminal-likeness, uh, in the absence of that, a quid pro quo arrangement pursued for purposes of the reelection of the president cannot be an impeachable offense unless the president's motive is to actually harm the country. So if you had a president who was, who was let's go back to some old theories, right, genuinely and directly a Russian agent who was trying to weaken the United States so that Russia could take over Alaska, right, and that is for a science fiction scenario, right. Out of then <laughs> attempting to secure his real, this is what Dershowitz is saying, yeah. then he's acting, in his, even in his own mind, his motive is to harm the United States, that's unacceptable. That's where that whole discussion of motive came in. But there were two other arguments that are extremely interesting and, and, and quite controversial and, frankly, didn't get as much attention as they should have because they're harder to get your head around, mm-hmm. heads around. Uh, and one of them I just mentioned, which is motive. And you heard a lot of uh, several of the, of the president's lawyers and a number of Republican senators talking about how these Democrats are engaging in psychoanalysis. They're trying to look inside the president's head. You might remember this rhetoric. Uh, you can't know what the president was thinking. You can only know what mm-hmm. he did. And it's this notion that you can't assess motive. Mm-hmm. Well, in one sense, one sense, that's simply the technical legal term, nuts. <laughs> uh, because in every criminal case and in the vast majority of civil cases, we assess people's, people's motives. Right. Every undergraduate who's ever had a law-related case course remembers one phrase, mens rea. Right? I mean – what is the mental state? Was it deliberate? Was it reckless? Did they want to harm the country? So that argument in and of itself is just strange. But it actually is uh, more disturbing than that because this argument has a legacy. And the legacy is that the idea that we are unable to determine intent, especially legislative intent, was created as a way to challenge uh, congressional efforts to achieve racial equality and affirmative action programs. Hmm. The specific context, uh, there's a case called Adirond versus Pena, which no one really needs to know. Uh, but this was, in the 1990s, the specific context was the statement, well, we cannot distinguish between programs designed to help minorities and programs designed to harm minorities because we can't determine what a legislature's motive was. Therefore, we will ban all of them. That line of argument then was deployed in some religious establishment cases. Uh, there had previously been a standard that it was wrong or is wrong for legislatures to want to promote religion. Well, so the Supreme Court and some of the same justices using the same argument that had been designed this way, we can't really tell if the intent is to promote religion or, 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 or not, so we'll just not ask that question. Right? And so now you – and then you had uh, Hawaii versus Trump, which the immigration restrictions case. 
in which the plaintiff said, look at what Trump said. He said, I want to keep out Muslims. I hate these people. All the, all the terrible, offensive things he said during the campaign. Well, said the Supreme Court, we can't use those statements to re- figure out what was the intent of this president. Uh, that would be too hard. Hmm. So we'll only look at the effects of the law as it was passed. So this is actually not an argument that came out of nowhere. Hmm. This is one of the key arrows in the quiver of, of currently uh, conservative or, or, or right-wing lawmakers' arguments, uh, and it's deployed in an activist in a very particular way. That doesn't necessarily make it wrong. It just has a very interesting history that seems to have slipped right by. And in yeah. particular, I think members of the general public may not realize from the perspective of ordinary trials, of ordinary legal cases, how absurd it is to suggest that a jury can't ask questions about people's motives. That's, that's simply nonsensical. The other argument that Dershowitz made um, that had me sort of rolling on the couch, um, and it went by, I mean, he, he, he said it several times, but I got so little attention that I'm not even sure whether even people like yourselves who clearly follow this stuff much more closely than the general public, I'm not sure you caught it. Did you catch his repeated references to a dean of Columbia Law School named uh, Timothy Dwight? I did not catch that. No. Timothy Dwight was the dean of Columbia Law School in the 1870s. He actually was the founding dean of Columbia Law School. There's a whole story there. He, was, uh, he founded that law school to favor one legal philosophy, which was different from the one at Harvard. And there's a hmm. whole fight within the legal academy at that time of how we should think about. And uh, um, this isn't irrelevant. Part of the fight was how do we think about laws and constitutions. Sure. Uh, so he was part of a school of thought, not a randomly, randomly selected individual. But Dershowitz cited Dwight at least three or four times, saying that in the 1870s, this guy at Columbia said you could only... Uh, impeach and remove a president for criminal action. And that's how Dershowitz knew that that was the right standard. And he even at one point made the, the really, honestly, kind of silly uh, assertion. And after all, Dwight lived closer in time to the founding of the Constitution than we do, so he must have understood it better. To see just how dumb an argument that that is, consider that all you have to do is find something that was published one year earlier, right? And presumably that should trump. Um, in fact... Uh, in the 1830s, 1833, there was a Supreme Court justice named Joseph Story who wrote some of the most famous commentaries on the Constitution ever written. Again, 1833, closer to the time <laughs> of the Constitution than Dean Dwight. And a Supreme Court justice, not just a law school dean. So if we're, if we're playing authority poker here or lawyer ball, <laughs> as it's sometimes called, uh, you know, I, I see your Columbia Law School dean and I raise you a Supreme Court justice. Uh, and Story <laughs> said the opposite. And if you don't mind, I'd like to read you a short phrase from what Story wrote, because this yeah. was such a central argument. And with due respect uh, to my professional colleagues, colleagues, it was argued so poorly by the Democrats and their lawyers. Mm-hmm. So here's what Story says in 1833. There are many offenses purely political, which has been held to be within the reach of parliamentary impeachments, not one of which is in the slightest manner alluded to in our statute book. Indeed, political offenses are of so various and complex a character, so utterly incapable of being defined or classified, that the task of positive legislation, that is written law, would be impracticable if we're not almost absurd to attempt it. So Story said if you want to know what's an impeachable offense, you have two places you can look. Uh, Resort must be had either to parliamentary practice or the common law. That is, either ask it's whatever the Senate thinks it is or some common law tradition. Now, I've already mentioned that in the modern practice, we tend to think it's whatever the currently sitting Senate thinks it is. But Story thought that would be absurd. That, he said, would be incompatible with the genius of our institutions. No lawyer or statesman would be inclined to countenance so absolute a despotism of opinion and practice, which might make that a crime at one time, which would be deemed innocent at another. So in Story's view, you had to go to the common law. All right. 
as long as we're playing this game, let's go to the common law. And it turns out the common law of impeachment, what he referred to as parliamentary impeachment, goes back to the, the, thir- the 14th century. Uh, and I won't bore you with any more of this, going any further down this <laughs> rabbit hole. I will assert, and I, I, I can prove this if you insist, uh, that in the 1380s, it was very, very clear that impeachment did not require a criminal offense. In fact, there were very few defined criminal offenses of any kind. Well, wait, says Dershowitz. The Americans wanted something different from parliamentary uh, impeachment. We wanted something new that would be more restricted. And he and everyone else kept citing Hamilton. And they kept citing one of the uh, Federalist Papers. Unfortunately, they tended to cite the wrong one. (laughs) Because in Federalist 69, Hamilton says the following. And I will stop reading notes after this. I just think this stuff is kind of interesting. And it's the stuff I wish someone had brought up as I was watching, you know, for God's sake, where is uh, this argument? Uh, In the delicate, uh, so speaking of an impeachment of a president, in the delicate and important circumstance, the president of confederated America would stand upon no better ground than a governor of New York and upon no worse ground than the governors of Maryland and Delaware. That probably sounds like a weird statement. Like, what on earth is he talking about? Well, what he's talking about and what was utterly missing from the impeachment debate and is utterly missing from almost every debate of this kind that I see is the fact that between 1776 and the adoption of the U.S. Constitution, 13 state constitutions were adopted. And every one of them involved debates about the same phrases and clauses and words that showed up in the U.S. Constitution. And every one of them involves background. These are obvious. If you want to know what did people think these things meant, right, at that that time, the 13 constitutions that were actually adopted between 1776 and 1780 would seem like a really obvious place to, to, to look. And that's what Hamilton is saying. And what he's specifically saying is, let me say it again. The president would stand upon no better ground than a governor of New York. All right, let's take a look at the New York Constitution of 1777, Section 33, which says, a president may be removed for mal and corrupt conduct in their offices. Now, Dershowitz made a big deal that maladministration was taken out from the impeachment clause of the Constitution, but corruption was not. So the idea that you need a crime is contradicted at least by the New York Constitution, to which Hamilton alluded, what about Maryland and Delaware? With respect to which he says, the president stands upon worse ground than the governors of Maryland and Delaware. That is, the president can be impeached more easily than under these two constitutions. Well, the Delaware Constitution of 1776, Article 23, for those of you who are keeping score at home, uh, <laughs> governor may be impeached by ma- for maladministration, corruption, or other means. The Maryland Constitution says a pres- uh, governor, excuse me, may only be impeached upon proof of corrupting, receiving, corruptly receiving monies. But remember, Hamilton says the president is less protected mm-hmm. against impeachment than that governor. So any serious discussion of the historical record, and this is obviously barely scratching the surface of, 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 of the topic, um, you know, any kind of serious historical discussion is simply not resolved by saying there was a guy in 1875 at Columbia Law School who said. Mm-hmm. That's not a serious argument. Uh, It's the kind of fake historical argument that lawyers and judges rely on all the time. Uh, But I've rarely seen one quite as obviously just intellectually offensive uh, as the one Dershowitz was deploying. So it might have been really – this might have been a moment for a national uh, education on the history of impeachment in this meeting. We might have had a serious argument. It's not what we got. Why – don't you think? Like, do you think people just didn't catch these things that you're listing now, or why wasn't this argu- argument made? I think that 
people uh, uh, who are involved in impeachments mm -hmm. are trained in either law or politics, and very often in both. Okay. As you know, many of the members of the Senate on both sides were lawyers. Mm -hmm. um, the way in which lawyers and judges treat history in our system um, is mind-bogglingly, well, mindless. Um, uh, you know, every, every time a Supreme Court justice uh, starts talking about an historical event, a, a history graduate student jumps out of a window. Uh, you know, <laughs> clap to save the history graduate students. Uh, <laughs> we have, uh, and, 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 and it's extraordinary because there's no other context in American life or letters or professions where you'd get away with this, where, where mm -hmm. making a historical claim could be treated with such, I mean, with such contempt for the sources and the record and the idea of asking questions. Imagine if I got up at a music awards show, you know, and said, well, blues really started in St. Louis in 1961. I'd be torn to pieces. I'd be accused of not only not knowing my history, but of, of racial bias by erasing the earlier history of, of, of the blue, of blues and its roots. I mean, right, it would be, it would be, assuming I were someone, anyone we're listening to, it would be a scandal. Mm -hmm. Yet Supreme Court justices or Alan Dershowitz can get up and say, well, we all know what this means because one dean said this in 1867. <laughs> right. And we all just go, oh, that sounds so smart. Sure. So I think the problem is that we have a very, in this country, especially confronted by political events like elections, um, we have a, you can put it one of two ways. We have either a very high bar for stupid or a very low bar for smart. If people <laughs> can speak in sentences, we, we, we just sort of lean back and say, wow, that's impressive. <laughs> I would love to hear what you think they could have done better. Uh, sure. Uh, but in this case, I do think there are some sort of major steps that, in my view at least, were serious mistakes. Um, and the Republicans called them out on some of them. So for one thing, it is absolutely true that the Democrats in the House were deeply concerned to have this completed before the election because they wanted Trump removed from the ballot, which is one of the consequences of being removed. That's a strategic political consideration. Uh, it may be a very important one, but it distorted the way they proceeded in the case. Um, they should have been more patient. They should have taken more time. There's nothing wrong with getting a conviction after a re-election and removing him in his, removing him in his second term. And if he were to lose the election and not be reelected, and that would be the end of the impeachment, that's fine too. Uh, this isn't supposed to be about scoring, you know, style points like a skating competition. Uh, uh, you're supposed to be pursuing this as a serious endeavor that's, that's freestanding, that's not connected to external concerns. So I do think they went too fast. Um, I don't think the courts were get, going to give them much help, but I think they should have made the court say so. I think they should have gone to the courts, demanded these things, either been told no, or at least be able to say, look, we've been waiting for a year and haven't gotten it. Uh, the haste was not necessary, except as a matter of political calculation that I don't think was, I won't say relevant, but was, was appropriate in this context. That's such one, to my mind, a uh, major blunder. An impeachment ought to be a moment of profound national discussion of major constitutional principles. And we lost that opportunity because of the way they chose to frame the arguments. And then finally, once the arguments were joined, I did not hear the Democrats have any serious response to the claims that only a criminal offense could be a ground for impeachment uh, or related claims. It's not that they didn't say anything, but it wasn't a serious response. It hadn't been researched they didn't have prepared statements. They hadn't done, they didn't have even as much information as I just, or, or didn't seem to have, even the, the very slight amount of information I just tossed out right here. Uh, uh, it's apparent they did not consult with constitutional historians. Uh, you know, and that's, these are 
much bigger questions than did this guy do this thing, right? That's not what an impeachment trial is about. That's what a parking ticket is about. Uh, and I don't think the Democrats did a good job of framing this case in terms of the large, frankly, grand principles uh, that it not only deserved but required in order to be prosecuted effectively. Do you think impeachment is like inherently flawed because it's a political process? I don't know if you're familiar with like comparative legal systems, like what do other countries do I am. when it's not a political process? Um, it's essentially always a political process. Okay. And the reason is impeachment, the, the term impeachment, we use that to mean mm-hmm. um, removal of a chief executive by the legislature. Okay. After all, if it's a criminal complaint in a court, we don't call it an impeachment, we call it a trial. Mm-hmm. There are differences comparable then with systems among whether a sitting chief executive can be charged with a crime. Benjamin Netanyahu in Israel has been indicted uh, for bribery and corruption. As that case goes forward, uh, there are unanswered questions about whether he has various kinds of immunity or not uh, uh, with respect to evidence. But as that case goes forward, it will be a criminal trial, not an impeachment. So no matter how you structure it, uh, impeachment is by its nature a political trial. It's less a matter of an adjective as that's what the word means. Okay. So in purely parliamentary systems, you don't need impeachments because you have votes of no confidence. The British practice of parliamentary impeachment had to do with high royal officials. Uh, Chancellor of the Exchequer, for example, was how parliament could remove not a prime minister but a chancellor of the Exchequer or the head of the navy. Uh, and you can ask all kinds of fascinating British constitutional questions. What if, such a, what if there were a vote of no confidence and the prime minister refused to leave? Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a situation in Brexit where the British are confronting uh, the following question. If there's a vote of no if, – if there's a – if a prime minister's party loses an election during the term, should the government immediately resign? in the absence of a vote of no confidence. And these are norm, norms, you know, there's no clear answer. Yeah. Uh, we have those too. But impeachment is always, it's by definition a political process, couched in legal terms in a quasi-judicial setting. Because that's just how we do this kind of stuff. Yeah. From a political perspective and a legal perspective, you mm-hmm. think they failed to complete their goal? Or I do. do you think? I, I do. I think that having chosen the strategy that they did, uh, if that's the way you want to go, uh, they had to pr- pursue it much more aggressively. How do you think the Democrats could have, setting aside, I guess, like knowing that Trump wasn't going to be convicted right. in the center, that that was very unlikely, how do you think they could have succeeded politically? So what, what, what I mean, and, and, and you do this in a strategy session. You sit down and say, what are the other guys going to say? And what can we do to prevent them succeeding in saying it? So they had to see it coming that the Republicans were going to say there never was a vote on this. So hold the damn vote. They had to see it coming that, you know, the, the, the Republicans were going to say you didn't have testimony from these various witnesses. So establish your record that you've done absolutely everything possible to get those witnesses. Uh, especially if one of your articles of impeachment is going to be obstruction of Congress, you have to, and this is both a technical legal concept and a, just a political idea, you have to establish an impasse. You have to establish that Congress has exhausted its efforts, uh, the means at its disposal. And that the executive has stood fast in all cases, right? So the only thing that can save us is the courts, uh, and in the absence of the courts, this impeachment. The problem is the Republic. I mean, just from purely a tactical sense now, you know, not, nothing philosophical, uh, the Republicans were quite able to say, well, no, you didn't exhaust, exhaust all your resources. There were things you could have tried. Uh, there were different arguments about different subpoenas. You could have gone ahead and argued them. And, of course, it's frustrating, and, of course, it takes time, and, of course, it's a, a long, drawn-out litigation. But complex litigation is long and drawn out. Uh, It's a little bit, I I don't know if this has anything to do with the matter biographically, 
but it's sort of what I would expect if a, a bunch of prosecutors who are used to dealing with uh, violent crimes were asked to try a complex white-collar crime case. They'd be appalled at how long it takes and how much a slog it is through millions of pages of documents and how much it depends on just, just going through, you know, miles of text and number. Um, it's not fun. It's not dramatic. It's not exciting. It, it requires incredibly pains. I'm not saying that they, the house managers didn't do these things. If you look at what they presented, they did. Mm-hmm. Uh, but not nearly to the extent that, let's say, a major corporate fraud case would have taken. A major corporate fraud case would have taken three or four years to prepare. I worked on, as a lawyer, I was part of a team that investigated the failure of the largest savings and loan in America. Uh, and we successfully proved that that had been caused by fraud. Turned everything over to the FBI. It was all very exciting at the end, but it wasn't at all exciting during the year plus we were doing it. Uh, and the million and a half pages or two million pages of documents that we had. So we are looking down the barrel of Trump's reelection or non reelection. So if he is reelected or if the House manages or chooses to continue to pursue him in a legal sense, can the House impeach him again? Can they? Certainly. Yeah, can they? Will they? Absolutely. There's absolutely nothing in the Constitution that says you get one impeachment every 18 months uh you know uh no because first of all it's not a criminal trial and secondly i would presume it would be impeachment on some different grounds the answer to almost any question in this area is nobody knows (laughs) because this isn't really law exactly uh it is up to the congress to make the rules of impeachment congress constitution says congress makes the rules constitution also says the chief justice presides we almost had a moment there where the entire debate turned on the meaning of the word preside um, which was which was a fascinating debate. Could the chief justice order the production of witnesses and documents? Right. And could that be appealed externally to a federal court? I was looking forward to that debate, frankly. I thought that was going to be loads of fun. I can tell you the answer is no one has any idea. And it, and it turns out what does the word preside mean? Um, right, which is the kind of thing that happens when you try and get something specific, a specific rule out of a very general constitutional text. You, you end up parsing individual words, and eventually you start to feel very strange that you're doing that. Um, could they? Sure. Uh, I hope that they don't. I think I, I cannot imagine a scenario, barring something, you know, science fiction that President Trump shoots somebody in the Oval Office. Uh, um, famously on Fifth Avenue. Famously on Fifth yeah. Avenue. Although, <laughs> although, 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 barring something of that order, I can't see any way this plays well politically for the Democrats. On the other hand, in a second, if there is a second Trump term and something new comes out, something different, uh, which is unambiguous. Certainly they could investigate it. I imagine if there's a second Trump term, there will be investigations. Actually, there will be investigations. It's just there will be investigations. It's only a question of who will be investigating whom and for what. And after Trump ceases to be president, those could conceivably lead to some legal jeopardy of some kind or another. I don't want to speculate uh, on what that might be. As I'm sure you know, there are multiple ongoing criminal investigations in several states uh, having to do with with taxes and real estate um, uh, financing and uh, an array of other things. So yes, they will undoubtedly continue to to investigate. I cannot imagine. I simply cannot imagine there'll be another impeachment. The last two impeachments, one has been Republican, one has been Democrat. Both have been carried out uh, in the face of a Senate controlled by the opposing party. Both have been carried out in a highly partisan fashion in the sense that support was sharply divided by party. Uh, and both were carried out without overwhelming support in the public. And both failed. It seems to me highly plausible that both parties are going to be kind of gun-shy about going forward with impeachments again anytime soon. 
uh, particularly since it seems at least plausible in retrospect that Clinton's reputation benefited from the impeachment at the time. 20 years later, not so much, yeah. but at the time. Uh, and it seems plausible right now that Trump is benefiting from having been impeached. Mm-hmm. So there's a sharp, just practical lesson here uh, about the dangers of unintended consequences. Yeah. So I guess going back to, especially considering there's debate on like even the language concerning the chief justice's role Mm -hmm. in this, is the structure and the architecture of impeachment even developed enough to ever produce the removal of a president? Sure. I mean, Johnson came within one vote, and the only reason that vote was cast the way that it was was almost certainly he was bribed. Uh, So barring outright criminality, Sure. But it seems to me you need, you know, three things. Uh, one is you need two houses, two, two branches of the government supporting the endeavor. And since one of them is never going to be executive, kind of by definition in the case of since one of those is never going to be the executive, you need to go in knowing you have support from the courts. I don't mean that the courts are biased. I mean that the courts will be willing to act quickly to consider the questions that are raised and rule on them, whether in your favor or not. They'll be willing to be part of the process. Uh, second... It seems clear that, um, you know, you need, I don't think you need to show a a criminal act, but I think Dershowitz came very close with his strange phrase, crime-like behavior, behavior that even people who politically support the president will say, well, that's just wrong. And there was an element of that here. I don't know if it was nearly strong enough. It can't be just same old dirty, I mean, it can't be easily dismissed as, oh, that's just dirty politics. It has to be something extraordinary, because impeachment is intended to be and is an extraordinary remedy. That's why it's so hard. Um, so I hope we will never have a removal of a president from impeachment because the only way that would happen is if we had somebody really, really awful as president. Um, but possible? Absolutely, it's possible. I never thought I'd live to see an impeachment in my lifetime. I've seen two. <laughs> Fair, yeah. Do you think that, like as you mentioned, there will probably be more hesitance in the future about um, impeachment, especially uh, if Trump is reelected and it does help his approval? Do you think that could be considered in and of itself um, you know, a threat to democracy or a threat to... The power of impeachment? Well, I don't, I don't think those two things are the same. Okay. Uh, I mean, don't forget, we had one impeachment uh, after the Civil War, and that was a really long time <laughs> before we had another one, uh, and everyone thought that was fine. I don't ever recall anyone saying, you know what's wrong with the American system? We haven't had an impeachment in a long time, and we really should have more of them. Uh, so, you know, I'm not worried. Impeachment is a check that is available to, to limit the actions of a president who is conceived to be out of control or acting badly. But it's not by any means the only ones. Uh, we, have, we have plenty of others. Uh, it is supposed to be a last resort. So, yes, I think it would weaken impeachment from its current prominent position, where people start talking about impeachment anytime they don't like a president. Talking about it, I said, not necessarily pursuing it. Uh, and so returning to that earlier tradition where impeachment is way in the background, and it's like nuclear war. Um, we know it exists. But we're not really making our weekend plans on the possibility that it might occur. Um, and at one time, people did talk about nuclear wars that might happen any day, and, and I thought that was a little hysterical too. Um, in terms of a threat to democracy, you know, there are many things about what's gone on in the last couple of months and what might go on in the next year or so that could conceivably indicate a genuine threat to the American democratic system. I'm not remotely ready to declare that that crisis is here yet, but I can certainly see a path by which we could get there. Can you articulate what that path would look like or like what would have to happen to get there? Is that sure. not something you... Uh, um, so imagine we have a continuation of a very, very solid block of voters running around 40 to 45%. Let's assume that that not only remains the same, it becomes even more solid, let's say. 
um, who for want of a better term I will describe as right-wing populists, having some commonalities with right-wing populist movements in Europe. That's a political attitude that lends itself toward acceptance of authoritarianism. Uh, and we have a current president who has at least some tendencies toward authoritarianism. Imagine the next one is more authoritarian, supported by that same block. Imagine that the opponents are divided as they are divided. Now, it's entirely possible for you know, a, a cohesive group of 40% of the population to control the destiny of a nation. Um, we don't, it's not like a baseball game where everybody divides into teams and everyone's on one team or the other, as you know, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I could easily see a slide into uh, increasingly authoritarian actions, in particular with respect to the press, since this particular political movement has strong disapproval of the press. Uh, they tend to be in favor of free speech in certain contexts, but not political contexts particularly. Uh, right? So you can sort of go down a line of constitutional or rights-based issues with respect to which this body of voters is susceptible to accepting diminutions of liberty in, in the name of populist authoritarianism. Is there, how far could that go in the United States? You know, no one ever knows. Um, don't forget, we locked hundreds of thousands of people of Japanese ancestry into camps. It was in the context of a world war, but we did it. Um, we're capable of doing many things, depending on the circumstances. And, and one of the things, uh, there's a famous line, uh, I believe it was Chief Justice Hughes, who said, emergency powers tend to kindle emergencies. Um, if, you, if you have the possibility of emergency powers, you'll find a way to say there's an emergency, mm-hmm. even if it's a busload of immigrants from Guatemala approaching the Mexican border. It's an invasion. We have to act on emergency. And that is precisely the language of right-wing populist authoritarianism. I mean, it's no coincidence. Uh, that is the vocabulary. Mm-hmm. Um, so sure, give me a 30-year time frame and, 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 and a little bit of uh, leeway as a sort of science fiction writer. I can easily see uh, this experiment failing, or, or at least going through a period of, of, of extreme darkness. Um, I don't expect that to happen. As I said earlier, I have optimistic days and pessimistic days. You know, on the grand scheme, I'm, I'm, I'm much more optimistic. I'm much more pessimistic about the next, let's say, four or five years. Okay. And not in terms of authoritarianism and the failure of democracy, just in terms of things that might be really ugly and our politics might be really messy for a good while yet to come. So obviously we're talking about the removal of a president with this impeachment episode. There are other ways to remove a president, namely the 25th Amendment. Past presidents have used it to temporarily um, sign away while they're undergoing like, medical treatments. But do you at all foresee or predict or have any inkling of this kind of circumstance happening with President Trump, either v- the vice president and a majority of the cabinet? Delivering yeah. unto so, so, so that would be essentially a mutiny. Yeah, right? Captain, we are removing you from the bridge. Uh, all very, all very cinematic and dramatic. Very Star Trek. Uh, I was thinking of the Kane mutiny or, or mutiny in the bounty, but okay, fine. Uh, <laughs> I'm old. I'm keep in mind. I went to high school in the 1820s, so you know the whole thing about cars and television is way, way past me. So you gotta take into consideration the circumstances that gave rise, not directly to the 25th Amendment, but one was FDR, but Wilson. Mm -hmm. Wilson suffered a massive stroke. Oh, yeah, there's a very good Drunk History episode about this. (laughs) Four months, according to people who saw him. Uh, He could barely walk. He couldn't speak. He couldn't read. He was pushed around in a wheelchair. And his wife acted as gatekeeper and affected sort of like a chief of staff plus veto and kind of ran the country for six months. FDR was, it was not nearly so severe as Wilson, but by near the end of his life, 
was in very poor shape. Interesting, once again, his wife kind of stepped in. Some sort of Shakespearean thing about wives of failing <laughs> kings uh, going on here. Those are the kinds of circumstances. I mean, literal physical disability, uh, literal incapacity, with the result that someone completely outside the scope of elected government, some, I mean, somebody's wife, just steps in and takes over the country. Right? So that was the thinking behind the 25th. Mm-hmm. It was never conceived of as a kind of mutiny provision. Right, Captain, we think you're out of control. You're endangering the ship. If you're in danger, right, the mutiny idea is if you're endangering the ship and its crew, the first mate can take over. So that would imply that you know, the vice president says, Mr. President, you're endangering America and its citizens. That's not what the 25th is for. Could it be used that way? Well, it's back to the impeachment question. Nobody knows. These are political measures. Historically, there were various thoughts about what they were before and how they would be used. Over time, that thinking may evolve. Um, nothing in the wording of the 25th Amendment makes it all clear. No longer capable of performing the duties of president. What does that mean? Yeah. Suppose knows? Donald Trump, or any other president, but suppose Donald Trump develops a severe case of insomnia and doesn't sleep for five consecutive days and starts hallucinating. Is that grounds for replacing this president? And the answer is, I have no idea. I would hope not. Yeah. Well, I hope that would be grounds for bringing in the, the, the presidential medical staff and consultations and so on, right? And again, if you, if you don't like this in the case of Trump, imagine Obama. Uh, under the great stress of his deep moral judgment, couldn't sleep for five days and began to hallucinate. Should he be removed from the presidency and make Biden president? And, you know, when you make it your own president or a president you approve of, suddenly you're a lot more hesitant about that sort of thing. You can flip that around. As you know, in the press, there are people, and I, I must say I disapprove of what they're doing, professors of psychology and doctors and so on, who say, I see signs that Donald Trump is insane, and you know, and I, and I really personally deeply disapprove of that. Uh, the diagnosis from the TV. Diagnosis yeah. from the TV, uh, for one thing, and yeah. using your authority as a professor of, of in this case, psychology, to, to throw out these really wild statements. You know, we, we, we should have a little hesitancy. Um, the more, for example, I, I'm a prof- I'm a, I teach constitutional law and American democratic history, uh, democratic thought, and American development. I hope that makes me more hesitant about making blanket statements. You know, not more eager to make them, because the more you know about it, the more qualified your opinions ought to be in both senses of the term. But could we imagine uh, Trump displaying, or any president displaying, sufficient signs of mental instability? that invocation of the 25th Amendment would be appropriate, that would be left up to the people who would carry it out, starting with the vice president. And just like the impeachment, it, it, it's a political decision that has to be made by the participants in the situation at the time. If I remember correctly, the wording of the 25th Amendment also accounts for a different body being mm-hmm. chosen instead of the cabinet as the body that says, all right, Mr. President, it's right, so I, I don't have it in front of me. Yeah. And to be honest, I didn't read it in preparation for this, <laughs> very this, this event. I didn't very know it was going to come up. Yeah. Uh, my recollection is that it can come out of Congress. Yeah. But that's just a different set of actors about whom we'll ask the same question. Yeah. Don't forget, one of the really important categories in American constitutional law is something called the political question category. Questions that cannot be answered as legal matters, they are by their nature political. And frankly, I think almost all of this falls into that realm. I'm speaking now of grounds for impeachment or grounds for removal. That doesn't mean questions of things like privilege are political. We actually have a Supreme Court precedent on that question from the impeachment of a federal judge named Nixon. It's U.S. versus Nixon, but it's not the president. It's very confusing to students. Well, we talked about precedent and how mm-hmm. maybe that's not the correct word to use right. for an impeachment trial because it's a political process. Right. Right. 
And then you're also talking about how much debate goes into this word presiding. Mm -hmm. There was that mm -hmm. conversation that was missed. Does that conversation matter for the next impeachment trial or like? Yes, it will matter for all impeachment trials. Let me be clear. Okay. When I said that the word precedent is inappropriate, yeah. I meant with respect to grounds for impeachment or how impeachment is conducted. There mm -hmm. are purely legal questions. What is the scope of executive privilege with respect to an undersecretary of state? I mean, that's a specifically legal question to which there are legal answers and courts have addressed them. Okay. Uh, uh, and on those questions, there are precedents. Okay. But those precedents would only come into play once that question reaches a court. Okay. The other, or, well, I'm sorry, I shouldn't say that. Are most likely, it is most likely that those kind of precedents will only, would only come into play once those questions reach the court. Mm -hmm. It's an open and unresolved question whether the presiding officer, the chief justice of the Supreme Court, mm -hmm. could rule on questions of things like privilege or admissibility in a particular impeachment proceedings and if so, whether those decisions could be reviewed by some other federal court and you find yourself in the awkward position of asking whether the Supreme Court's members other than the Chief Justice can review his actions, then presumably he would recuse himself from his own review of his own ruling, mm -hmm. um, at which point you have a real possibility of a 4-4 tie. Uh, uh, they're just a, it, it's a very clumsy procedural position to be in, but all of that is not known. What I did mean to say, though, is that the term precedent is not useful with respect to the political questions, even though it remains perfectly uh, valuable with respect to specifi specifiable legal questions. Okay. So the, the matter of what a president does that can be impeached for or that, removed that, for, that's, that's where the precedent But you can is. say, well, hey, the other president did that. Right. And the other senators around you can be persuaded or not. Right. Clinton committed perjury. Yeah, I don't care. Oh, okay. Well, that was, that was a short argument. Um, what's next? Yeah. Thanks it's a little bit like the question, if I can add one last thought. Sure. Uh, what would happen if Trump is reelected and becomes the first president ever to be impeached and then reelected? And the answer is, that will be a thing that happened. Simple as that. It hasn't happened before. Mm -hmm. Now it will have happened. Yeah. You know, uh, we, it's very difficult to ascribe significance to events like that until long after the fact. I don't think, for example, it'll become a strategy to try to get yourself impeached to improve your chances of being reelected. <laughs> I don't foresee that becoming a new, you know, triangulation move. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, again, we try very hard to immediately see deep significance in everything as it happens. That's not how deep significance works. Uh, it, it takes time to emerge, and, and usually we don't recognize it right away. Great. That's helpful. Thank you. Well, Professor Schwaber, thank you so much for sitting down with us. Oh, my um, pleasure. I think we all learned a lot, and hopefully the students and other people who listen to this podcast can learn something about impeachment from it, too. So thank you. Thank you. For more information about the podcast and to submit questions to political science professors, visit polisci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. You can find more episodes on all streaming platforms, and if you enjoyed this one, please rate, follow, and subscribe. Thanks for listening to 1050 Bascom. 